Okay, wonderful. Uh, and this is going to be our first interview ever on this podcast, so we're really excited about this. We are talking to Cindy Shepard. Uh, Cindy is a councilwoman from Hearst, Texas, and she's going to tell us a little bit about her experience there and why she decided to run for council. Ash and Lime actually collaborated very closely with Cindy on a, an event series that we did in Hearst, um, and she was a really great advocate of what we were doing over there. So we'd love to kind of learn, uh, talk a little bit about what she's been doing and why she decided to run for office and some very interesting perspectives that she has. So Cindy, thank you for, uh, for coming on and talking to us. Well, thank you, Rick and Christopher. You were very instrumental in what we wanted to do in Hearst. Uh, I've been on the council now for about two years, and you know one of the reasons I ran was because Hearst was developed in the 50s. We had mm-hmm. Bell Helicopter come in. We had a lot of housing that was really um, single family, uh, nice neighborhoods, and that's now what they consider the south side of Hearst, and it had one of the first shopping centers with um, department stores, uh, movie theater. Mm-hmm. And that has kind of gone into decline, although we've been lucky as a community to have a community theater called Artisan. And that's what we wanted to support. You know, you can volunteer there. People come, uh, over 100,000 people a year come into that area, but there is nothing to do there. So in 2000, around 2006 or 7, the city did some surveys talking with the population of Hearst, seeing what they would like to, to do there, and it was an arts community. Well, as an artist, that was right up my alley. So I'm like, yay, we're going to do some art. And then it never happened. But of course, in 2008, we had a financial decline all over the United States. So some things were kind of put on the back burner. I was part of the Neighborhood and Advisory Committee in Hearst, and still there was nothing really being done. So I thought, you know, I... I love having connections with the community. I love some of the artists I had met, some of the people that were nonprofit. And I just felt like we really had in place some of the people that could help co-create those, those kind of spaces. So, and then, of course, the city hired Ash and Lime, mm-hmm. and you guys came in with all these good ideas. And for the first time, I felt like we've got a partner. You know, we've got somebody that understands what we want to do. So we got busy on that. We did the pop-ups. Uh, you know, we did have some difficult moments, as you guys mm-hmm. know, because... Part of what you want to do is get the community involved. Right. Right. But guess what? That's kind of hard. Even the people that said, yay, I want to do this, you know, sometimes they don't show up. But you do, um, you know, we've done three now. Right. And so as you do that, the excitement has built. Mm -hmm. Um, We have gone on and opened an art space. We have, we can talk about this later, but this is an older shopping center that has been owned since it was first built. We're now in the third generation of owner. So we had to, and Rick and, and Christopher had to step up and, and kind of get them on board. Right. And so now they really are. We've got some interesting uses for the space. And so I'm just really excited about the opportunities. 
You know, this was an interesting project um, for for us to work on, and I think it's interesting just to think about being a council representative in a place like Hearst. Um, we had it another context worked in, in sort of a, a suburban strip mall context in a different type of project. Um, but for this, it's interesting, first of all, because Hearst, because of the way that it developed, it's not a community that has a traditional downtown. Correct. Um, so, you know, sort of the question is, how do you do something that's a, a placemaking exercise, creating a, a cultural center, creating a, a human center um, where people want to be in the context of something that was created as a suburban strip mall? And if, But if you look in the history of it, uh, this uh, Bel Air Center uh, that you have, this Bel Air Plaza, back in the 50s and the 60s, as I understand, that was kind of a big a place to hang out. Oh, it was a place to be. They had, uh, you know, the drive-ins with the roller skates, and all the kids would use that as their place to hang out. And people that worked at Bell shopped in the shopping center. So it was very, uh, it was a very hopping place. So it's interesting to look at that again. And one of the, the key components um, to, to, I think, this entire Bel Air Plaza is central arts. I mean, I know that that's someone, when we came in and started working with them, you had a, a relationship with Josh and Sergio over at, at Central Arts. Um, and when I talked to them, it was pretty amazing to me what they had done to kind of leverage the arts as placemaking and as a way to create value again in this very suburban context and and i think having uh intuitively a lot of the understanding of of some of the principles that we discuss can you talk a little bit about when you met them and and how that relationship kind of developed sure well josh had opened a central arts of bedford and a as we were talking about a strip mall that did not have much business there and just to, sorry to interrupt you a little bedford is a, 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 an adjacent community for those who don't know the area well just to talk a little bit about that first yeah. h-e-b her shoeless bedford actually is kind of a unique in a unique situation we're sort of the hub between dallas and fort worth and the hub of the metroplex so it, it does, and we work together a lot as cities. So when you're in Hearst, the next street over, the next house over can be Bedford. So Bedford um, did have a, a strip mall that was not doing well, and Josh stepped in with some of his fellow artists, and they decided Josh rented a small space and started giving very affordable art classes and, and inviting the community. But he also took that opportunity to showcase local artists. So in some of the areas of the shopping center that were not um, leased out, that were vacant, that were even dark at night, he put lights in the spaces, he showcased local artists, he opened it up so that it was a walkable space. And as an artist, I had taken some classes from them. I always enjoyed uh, getting to know everyone in the community. And he is, when Ash and Lime stepped in to help us in Hearst, HEB being, such a, HEB being such a close-knit community, they stepped in, too, and started working with us. And the city, think Hearst, recognized their ability and recognized that we were now on the road to possibly opening up opportunities for Hearst, Art and Hearst. So they worked with the shopping center owner to open a small space in Hearst, Central Arts of Hearst. And they have done really well with that. They, we now have kids' programs during the summer. We had free lunches for kids. So they are 
very helpful in spreading that community um, action along between the HEB cities, and that's one of the things that we're really hoping will take take root. I remember uh, when we were first talking to you about Central Arts and, and just some of the different people that you knew in Hearst. Is this something that you envisioned whenever you were running, wanting to be involved, more involved in your city, or is this something that is this some of your vision coming to fruition? Is it, are these some of the reasons that you specifically ran for council? And oh yes, <laughs> it definitely is yeah. part of my vision, and uh, actually, it sort of exceeded my vision. It was it happened so quickly. And we got so many, uh, we also have an all abilities art night. So we have uh, special needs art classes. We have, uh, you know, we partner with some of the senior citizens that come in and give classes. So it is truly a community um, with young and old um, different abilities. So it has really exceeded my expectations. I'm just so, I'm so proud of them, Central Arts. And I'm proud of you guys. Well, thank you, Cindy. We're proud of you as well. You point out, you really, I mean, and this is one of the things that we like to do is talk to the people there who know what they're talking about, such as Cindy, and who can point us in a direction because when we met with with these guys, we realized that they're doing something they didn't even realize that they were doing. Mm -hmm. um, and you want to comment more on that? And Well, yeah. I, I, I So first of all, I would say when I first went to the original location of, uh, you know, Central Arts and... Um, Bedford. Uh, I'll have to say, you know, I've lived in kind of a, a couple of the, the, what you might call the hipper neighborhoods in, in Dallas, the Deep Elm area, the Bishop Arts area, and do a lot of exploring of various things that are in the city. Um, and here you are in this suburb where I kind of assumed that nothing, all that cool happened, to be honest. And I'm seeing something that was really as cool as anything that you might find in Dallas. It really blew me away where you're going to this place and you have these film screenings or you have these performances or you have these arts events um, and they're really doing this great stuff. And, and you look at this HEB area and I'm finding all sorts of things that people who might be in a Dallas or in a Fort Worth or something don't think happens in these more suburban contexts. Um, so you started to say, well, how can this be celebrated? How can this be leveraged in such a way that, that it can be an asset to everything around it? The second thing that really blew me away is that you, I saw these guys who didn't have any particular training or background in, in urbanism and weren't connected with a lot of these ideas, uh, very intuitively, not only applying these ideas, but applying them in, in a different context than we might think about. Because we work, you know, a lot in the downtown area where we might say, hey, if you do this really cool display in this store, it might help to create some value. And here they were doing it in, in shopping centers, having these really amazing, you know, displays and these really cool celebrations of the arts and these great events, seeing it create a lot of value um, and and seeing these these principles applied in in the type of context that sometimes people who might consider themselves urbanists might give up on places like this and say this is never going to be cool or interesting or artistic. So so I really thought that that was that that was fantastic that that could happen in this very uh, suburban context. And the more we worked in this Hearst area, the more we saw that it had these this great diversity of really interesting assets that that just weren't maybe promoted or 
um, or programmed in a way that, that attracted the attention. Well, I think time. one of the things that, that, that we really need in communities are people that connect. Mm -hmm. So I think you know, what you guys did helped to connect those different disparate areas. But Josh and so many people that are co-creators now, people that get out there and just, they are not afraid to, to make a mistake. It's what they're doing is they're trying everything. And that's kind of what we have done in this area. We've had since then a, a few other activities and sometimes they work and sometimes they don't, but that is very important. And everything is done on an incremental basis with cities facing now, uh, maybe they don't have the tax structure that they used to, and it is gonna be incremental development. And those are the things that I think that, we're, that you guys in particular have brought to um, different areas to think about. It doesn't have to be something wonderful. It can just be something very small that makes a difference in your community. Yeah, and I want to go to a question I had because you talked about being an artist and you're also a city council person. What I think is really <laughs> unique about you, Cindy, is that I see you doing a lot of things. Um, so you have that the vision, but you also have the drive to see things come to fruition, which is a great thing to have. And I'd just like to hear you talk a little bit about, uh, I guess, how... Um, being an artist and a city council person kind of merge and you just mentioned how uh, you're not afraid to try something and I feel like unless you're working on you know a stone and being a sculptor you have so artists like to, to experiment right well they do in fact sometimes I look for words to describe what I do and I've kind of come to the conclusion hey I'm just an experimental artist I will try anything I will slap anything on a canvas and let's see what it does. And to me, a city is sort of like a, a blank canvas. Well, maybe not even a blank canvas. I mean, there's already stuff on it. This is like I bought a canvas from Goodwill and now I've got to figure out how to do it because Hearst has been developed already and it mm -hmm. was developed more in the 60s. And now looking at redevelopment, you have to work with some of what you've got there, but you are, as an artist, I think, more willing to see that um, you know, a little bit of this and a little bit of that can be helpful. It doesn't have to just be all of all or nothing. I'm also um, curious. Um, so you ran a uh, a studio in the Camp Bowie neighborhood in uh, in Fort Worth, um, which is an area that has uh, certainly more of a of a united urban identity. Um, and and I'm I'm curious because I know that you were very involved with revitalization efforts over there. And I'd like to hear about if maybe something like that helped to inspire you to, to later run for council in Hearst and how that might have influenced It really you did. I am originally from Fort Worth, so I grew up in this area. And Camp Bowie, when I was a kid, Bowie Theater, Ridgely Theater, that was the place to be in Fort Worth. And of course, it's, it's got the historic brick, brick roads and things like that. When I opened, it was a jewelry store, but it was also a craft jewelry store. And so we participated in the gallery nights that were going on in that area of Fort Worth many years ago. This was in 1999-2000. And at the time, Camp Bowie had called, kind of fallen into disrepair. There were not as many people shopping there. I think we'd had uh, Ridgemore Mall, Hewland Mall, some things like that had kind of taken away from it. But it still had that feel. And so in being part of the revitalization of Camp Bowie, that area also included 7th Street and that Montgomery area. And I remember being involved in some of the first meetings where they talked about multi-use. Mm -hmm. And they talked about 
building something where people could live and walk and shop. And I just thought that was just the best the best thing that you could do for a community that needed to be revitalized. So I did help on that. I did watch that. And I have seen now 6333 Camp Bowie, which was a, a shopping center that had kind of fallen into disrepair, is now, once again, a very thriving community. So that did have a lot of impact. I, I've seen it work and work well. I hadn't known about your involvement in the West 7th area, which is for, for viewers who or listeners who don't know Fort Worth is is essentially adjacent to Camp Bowie and it has had some very, very intensive um, development. But that had to be, I mean, at the time, the turn of the millennium. Oh, I had never had even heard of that think. idea. Yes, I'd no. never heard. And I just thought, is this really going to happen? Because this is going to be exciting. And as I've seen it grow over the years, which it is still growing. Right. It's very exciting. Right. That area has been has been certainly wildly successful. Um, so it, I'm curious, as someone who, who came into uh, to local government, um, what do you think citizens who haven't uh, been on council or don't have the sort of inside scoop that you do, what, what are some of the things that you would like them to know about local government and how it works? Well, local government and how it works. Yeah. That's a broad question. It is a very broad question. Um, maybe maybe a, a culture shock that you experienced that, that you think the public should know about. Well, I'm not sure about a culture shock, but it's what I have really discovered is how important it is for a citizen's voice to be heard. And that really people will, in city government, listen to you. That when they ask you what you want in your community, they really do mean it. Uh, now, I know that right now we're experiencing a time when people cannot attend council meetings or maybe they can't get on an advisory committee, but those are the kind of things, the input that you receive from citizens and just getting out there in the community and giving them a chance to, to see you and talk to you and, and gather ideas from them is very important. You know, it's it's interesting because I think that it's it's easy for uh, people to think of government as something that's that's very detached from them, but I think even in a city as large as as Dallas, but certainly in, in a city of of your size, which is a little over thirty nine thousand, okay, about about forty thousand people. Um, what strikes me is that you know one person who shows up at a council meeting or who calls their representative and things like that does tend to have more influence than, than one might expect. Squeaky wheel gets the most grease, yes. Yes, yeah, that, that definitely makes sense. Um, why do you think people are more focused, not to get into national politics, but why do you think people are more focused on national politics than local government? Because we, we seem to get very... Or do you think that? Or do you, yeah, do you think that? Well, I do. In fact, one of my mantras almost has become local government is what it's all about. I mean, that is really the reason why I chose to go into local government, because I do see that that is where the communication happens, that's where the change happens, that that is the, um, you know, that's a little microcosm area. And to get people focused on that, because right now there's a lot of contention within uh, politics, and it's if you are a community and you are right there together and you are working on something together, that stops that. That is the only thing that I would know to, and I think that that is why local is so important because you can see that person at the cafe or you can 
you know, attend a church service or just walk into the Walgreens and, and there they are and there you are accessible to them. So to, to that point, you you have a little bit different political views than some other people on council, but everyone seems to have the, a sim, more similar goal because you're board. Is that what you're saying? Because you're working. We do. Some- we really do have that similar goal. It is all about the community. And that is a focus that if everyone can just, you know, think about their neighborhood, think about their community. I think that that will serve to pull people together and keep people together in their communities. Something that we really need today. We do. It's interesting because one of the things that I've just from uh, observing council and, and just talking to some individual members is that the people, uh, from my impression, in Hurston Council seem to really like each other. It seems that there's they get along and there's a sense that they have a similar set of goals. You know, they do. And uh, going to the, you know, I attend Texas Municipal League of City meetings, National League of Cities, and... Hearst kind of has that reputation and always has had that reputation for really caring about the community and working towards community goals rather than allowing uh, differences. You know, we may have a difference, but once we voted, it's all about the council and the way that the majority has decided and we all back it up. So I'm very pleased about that because that is not true in all cities. (laughs) We've been to a few council (laughs) meetings. I've seen some that are like that, but I've I've certainly seen some that... That that aren't. Um, I'm curious. Uh, what are you uh, What are you proud of that that you've done so far in the two years, or that you've been involved with, either your own accomplishments or what you've seen the city of Hearst accomplish? Well, I'll I'll tackle both of those. One is I am very proud of the city of Hearst because we have stepped up and have worked to. Um, accommodate the arts centers the central arts of Hearst space that's something that the city of Hearst really and you know the fact that they wanted to do the pop-ups mm-hmm. with ash and lime and that we were able to do that and then as far as the citizens in Hearst I have been very happy with you know I've talked with nonprofits that are special needs nonprofits that help the homeless um, church groups small business because in Hearst, you know, one of the things that we have had is in the 70s, we built Northeast Mall. And of course, Northeast Mall was very, uh, you know, they gave us so much sales tax and we just really kind of ran on that for so long. And as we all know now, that's changing. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like the small business in Hearst is really stepping up, working with the arts working with the other nonprofits, and I've been very proud of, for myself, I've been very excited about meeting all these people and kind of seeing the connections between them, and then for the city and for the citizens to see how they actually are making use of those connections, and I just see it growing from here. It's interesting because we talk a lot um, between ourselves but also with you about this idea of social capital. Exactly. And, you know, a lot of times um, what we've seen in terms of, you know, the, this, uh, the pop-up uh, series that we did is, is an example of that, um, that we see the important thing not so much as being the events, but how you kind of can help to build the relationships between the, the city leaders, the uh, the important entities such as the businesses and the artisan theater and then the, the citizens as well. That's true. And another thing that I will say about being proud of Hearst and our city staff, our city staff, our, our council and mayor are a lot out in the public. 
So they do get out there and go to the pop-up events or go to different events, and I think that gives um, that gives a little bit more cohesive feeling to um, people working together with the city and the city staff. I'm curious, what is the the biggest challenge that you would uh, like to help the city address going forward? Well. <laughs> This is kind of a big one, sure. but it is. Uh, in fact, again, I'll mention the Texas Municipal League and the National League of Cities. Hearst being that, that first developed area in the mid-cities with Bell Helicopter, the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, one of the things that I'm actually very concerned about is that we have, uh, that was during the automobile era, of course, and I mean, we're still in that, but that was where people would drive from one shopping mall to the next, a lot of the strip centers, and in Hearst in particular, and I've found out a lot of other cities are experiencing this, you have owners that bought that back in the 60s or the 70s or the 80s. Mm -hmm. uh, things like asbestos abatements may be an issue, but we have small businesses wanting to move into these strip centers, and we have owners of these strip centers that, may not, that usually do not live in the community, mm -hmm. Uh, I wish that there was a way that we could, we talk about this sometimes on the council, what's the carrot, what's the stick to get them to understand that the community needs involvement and not someone that will just hold a property for tax purposes mm -hmm. or not someone that will put all the redevelopment that's needed on a small business because I don't know if the answer is helping small business get past that hurdle or putting some type of, of new um, code mm -hmm. in these, but I just wish that we could get some of the people that have owned these centers for so long and are not willing to bring them up to, to speed and just kind of use them as a depreciation. I'm afraid that that is going to really detract from some of the revitalization that we want to do if we have areas of cities that there's hardly any way you can get anyone to help and partner with you because we do need partners. And that brings up a really interesting point, I think, with uh, ownership, property ownership. Like in America, right, we have you have property rights, right? Like you can actually own property. And so then if you have the government come in and say, you know, well, you can't do this or you can do this. Um, but, it, you know, what we what you create and what you have on your property affects people around you. It right? does. And so it's it's an interesting fine line where. Um, you know, zoning code tells you what you can and can't build on your property, but at the same time, we're all about freedom in America, right? <laughs> but the, I guess the question is, how would you relate the freedom to do what you want with your property to limiting, limiting, help me out. So I, I, <laughs> let me, let me try, let me try to, it's a to difficult see, question to me, ask, yeah, much me, less answer. Let me see if I can maybe articulate what, what, um, what Christopher is asking. So. I think that, you know, you bring up the subject of maybe property owners who are not, uh, who don't participate as much in, in their property as, as they should. Um, and we have a lot of value for property rights in this country. Um, sometimes in practice, the regulations that we put on might be, might be a little more onerous than we, than we realize. Sometimes the regulations might be less onerous. Um, where do you see that? Balance. So where do you see um, when you have perhaps a property owner who is not doing what the city would like, 
Um, where do you see that balance in terms of we want to let them do what they want to do, but we also know that they're affecting the entire city by maybe they're, they're not improving their properties or whatever? Well, unfortunately, right now, I do not see a balance. Right. I, uh, in talking to so many different people <laughs> from all over the country, it's an issue that has not found a way to be addressed. You know, one of the things that I've seen in San Francisco is another one of those areas that have had some issues with that. Now, they have taken to, if there is a property that is not leased within six months to a year, I don't know what, you know, you could set it at different limits, but that tells them that that person is not really interested in developing. They're not interested in keeping that, you know, that tax base or any, all they're interested in is just letting it sit because of the, the um, taxes that they may get or some other reason. They have initiated uh, fines. Mm -hmm. So now that's a stick. You know, a lot of people don't like to talk about sticks and I don't either. I mean, I'd rather it be a carrot, but, uh, but just notice, just, realizing that they do have to be part of the community and i think that as it goes on and happens in more cities and towns something like that may mm -hmm. have to be done but it's going to be tough especially in texas because as you said christopher you know it is all about the right to own property and when does it invade on someone else's right well it's getting to where now with the state legislature not doing um, really not doing right by cities and it may may get e even worse that's another thing that city governments are dealing with is that we have to find new ways to work with those shopping center owners or we need to find new carrots and sticks and I honestly haven't met too many people that that know what they will be so if you guys have any ideas Shoot them to us. Well, I, I do think it goes to something you said earlier. We're getting people involved because if you have people That's showing true. up, I feel like more people show up about not wanting to have apartments in an area than they do mm -hmm. about wanting, they do. wanting someone to renovate a, a particular property. Um, it's almost like we've come to accept that some places get dilapidated and they're just old. And I think if you have, if you, if you as a city council person had five people even come into your city council meeting and say, Hey, we don't we like would like this property to look nicer i feel like everyone would probably listen and i mean you could you could you'd have a lot more weight with just five people probably showing up that's true christopher and you know the tactical urbanism right uh idea of i mean i've even thought gee do we need to just go out and have a party in a parking lot <laughs> well and, and that's and, you and, know and just yeah. show the property owner that we're going to make use of this, even if you don't. I don't know. That's probably illegal. <laughs> well, yeah, that's um, uh, if, if if someone did anything like that, I'm sure that the councilwoman <laughs> wouldn't advocate it. Of that's course. true. I would not. But um, I don't know. But but it does. You know, I, I think that it's it's interesting because flash mob. That's what it yes. Um, it, it's kind of that that label. Um, tactical urbanism is is used and sometimes associated with things that 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 can at times be anarchistic, um, but isn't always. And I think that the, the, bigger, the bigger point to me, if you look under that umbrella, is thinking very incrementally. It is, and, and, yes. and I think that that's, um, you know, Josh and Sergio at Central Arts, as we said, have, have done that successfully within their communities. And we've seen, um, you know, the city of Hearst hire us to to work, um, you know, on at the Bel Air, uh, which is unusual for cities to, to do that. You know, we don't have a lot, especially of, of you know, more 
uh, suburban communities hiring us and, and a non-downtown context to do things like that. So I think that that already indicates that there's been leadership. And I know that there's ongoing pop-up activity that's happening at, at the Bel Air, for example. So um, it may be, it, it, so I, I think that you're bringing up a couple of things. One is you brought up the issue of buildings that might have asbestos, which is kind of more connected to it. Maybe that there's a lot of buildings that aren't CO ready or just couldn't be occupied at this point. Certificate of occupancy. Certificate of occupancy. Maybe yeah. a sprinkler system or asbestos abatement, some things like that that we didn't think about, but are in those older shopping centers. So then the question is, is that, in your opinion, is, is there, because, so one of the things that you brought up was with San Francisco and Oakley has some similar things um, where you have very, very strong markets. And if someone isn't doing anything with their property, then they could be. You know that if you're in San Francisco, you could be making money with your, with your property. Correct. Um, if you can get a permit to build something. Uh, but in the case of Hearst, it may be that, that there's properties that don't, the numbers don't pencil out. Do you think the city has a sense? Are there a lot of property owners who would like to do something with their property, but they figured out in order to do the things to get it code ready, that it wouldn't, it just wouldn't pencil out? Or do you have a sense of what that might be looking like? Well, I have a sense that some of the older, some of the people that have held on to properties for a long time because HEB is the a hub of the Metroplex and the values keep going up, some of it may be related to just if I hang on to this for a while, it will go up and I do not have to deal with some of the, the problems with a new certificate of occupancy. But being someone that is really uh, seeing the necessity of community and small business and things like that, a small business does not have, they don't have the funds to bring things up to code, but maybe they have an idea for just a little coffee shop or something like that. And so it's not, you know, a lot of the shopping centers were things that had, um, you know, like Western auto stores or things like that. And we're not in that anymore. We are in someone that has an idea and would just like a chance to to give it a go. Right. And you're not going to be able to do that if you have got to bring something up to code. So I do wish that some of the shopping center owners were at least, uh, that's the, another thing we talked about. If your property is vacant for a couple of years, then it's gonna be your responsibility to bring it up to code. But. You know, it's 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 interesting because one of the things that that I'm thinking about, and you know, the other thing about a community like Hearst is that it was really built during a peak of of retail building. Exactly. So you have a large, large amount of retail, um, really disproportionate retail to the and parking population. space. Yes. A lot of parking space. Yes, lots and lots of of parking, and as we see, um, as as we found out in the Bel Air. Uh, project, much of that parking was not was not necessarily needed. Um, so one of the things I'm thinking about in terms of a, a sort of a carrot stick thing, um, we are big fans and I know we've discussed uh, strong towns. We're, we're big supporters of the strong towns movement and you have um, uh, Chuck Marone, who is the the uh, the face of strong towns. And he talks uh, recently, I, I saw him talking about what you might call um, an incremental certificate of occupancy. So one of the challenges that I'm sure a lot of these places face, if you're a small business and you want to come into a storefront in a strip mall in Hearst, um, the cost of getting 
everything taken care of all at once is is really really onerous um so what you talked about is is there a possibility where you can do something where they say these are some basic health and safety issues and you know we can get this to happen for you know if if you want to try this for six months we know this is going to be safe and the roof isn't going to collapse on anybody and then if we have some other issues to deal with we can we can perhaps do it from there well that is a great idea rick and i know that in hearst and i believe in other cities too they are starting to look at some of these zoning ordinances and code ordinances and understand that they were of a different time that now we may need to have something just as you talked about, the incremental is a great idea. And, you know, it's it's also one of the challenges, I think, is that a lot of times these bigger investors, you know, they're looking for what, what you call the national credit tenants, um, where you have these big chains that they know can come into a place and that they can trust them for, you know, to take on a longer lease. Those tenants are looking for some very standardized types of things that you might not find in a strip mall that was created in the 1960s. You're also finding a lot less of those. Yeah, and you're also well, finding that was a lot what less I was going to say. I mean, let me ask you guys a question, yeah. if you don't mind. Sure. Because in Hearst, we have things like Bed Bath and Beyond. We have Macy's. We have Sears. We have things like that. So while it has been structured to mostly get the larger corporations and go, ah, what a relief, we've got them. Those aren't going to be there forever. So what is the answer to cities changing their their frame of reference almost that you don't always go out after the the big guy that sometimes making things easier for a small business is is going to be to the benefit of the city i i do think that um the brick and mortars aren't going anywhere like we're always going to have brick and mortars Mm -hmm. and some of them will definitely survive but some of them won't and we already have seen a large decrease i think we're going to see a further decrease to a certain point um, of, of efficiency of, of the new era of the internet, right? Where you can just go on Amazon or wherever and um, get oh, half the things that you used to get where you used to run to, I don't know what store, you know, Toys R Us where I used to work is, is right. gone now, right? which kind of makes me a little sad. But uh, <laughs> yeah, but you know, that's a national credit tenant. You know, um, when I did appraisal, we, we worked on the Toys R Us stores and there were, you know, hundreds across the nation. And, uh, you know, those were anchor stores for a lot of different shopping centers. And whenever you have less and less of those, you know, I think it does go to show you have to adapt as a city. The question is, how do you adapt? I think it, it, it is on a way more far, fine-grained uh, detail than you currently have because you can't, you can't look at the whole city. Uh, there's not enough to go around for everyone anymore. And so I guess the question is, you know, like, I, I guess the incremental approach. I mean, I think, and I think incremental approach is, you know, that's a broad, um, that's a broad umbrella because it's, as I said, you can look at, um, you know, even something like a, a certificate of occupancy incrementally. Like, I think that it's a matter of, of looking at everything incrementally. I mean, I think that there's a broader issue, which is that, in the long run, you're probably not going to fill every storefront that's currently in Hearst. And in some cases, you're going to have to 
rethink um, you know some of these strip malls are going to have to be used for different uses and and reprogram multi-use like zoning that. and maybe Could, even have the shop owner live next door or something yeah, yeah. i mean it's it's going to have to be it's going to have to be i think multi-use like you know we we worked on a um a project in desoto which was also in a strip mall and also in a community that doesn't have a traditional downtown um and we were uh working with uh monty anderson who's a uh, we work closely within a lot of different contexts and he had created this, um, taken this old ACE hardware and re repositioned it essentially into a business incubation center where you have micro restaurants, micro retail, small offices and things like that. But one of the other things that we did in long term is, is we, um, we wrote a, a plan development, meaning we basically made a special zoning code for it that allows residential to be on that site. So that in the long run, you're thinking differently about all of the uses that you might say, okay, can we do residential on this site? Can we do offices? Do we need to just start the whole thing all over? So I think taking that model from the 1960s and, and rethinking it in different ways. Um, I think that, but the other thing thinking about incrementalism is that you need to have an environment that can incubate businesses of different sizes and that can allow them to stay very very small or that can allow them to to grow organically that's a good point um so you know for example if if you say the grow to soto example and and we're hoping that there's an opportunity to do something similar in a former um a storefront in, in the bel air that we discussed where you're saying okay we have this larger space can we have something where somebody can have you know, just a, uh, you know, a stand somewhere. Somebody can have a micro retail spot or a micro restaurant. And then if there's opportunities to grow, they can grow step by step instead of being having to say, well, if we want to sell coffee, we have to have our own space and it has to have a five-year lease or a 10-year lease. Huge and we commitment. Finish the space. Right. It's a huge commitment. And it's not going to, you can't fill all of these spaces anymore with people who can make the commitment. So you have to be able to start very, very small and, and, and incubate. It's, um, it, it, you know, one of the things I talk about that's that's another example of this. You know, we're sitting in, in an office right now in this, what they call the novel co-working space, right? So we have our own um, private office that we're sitting in and that we're, we're recording this. Um, but in this same space, you have this seven-story building, um, and you have people who just have a desk, or you have people with smaller offices than ours, or not larger offices, or even who have an entire floor of this building. Um, so that if we, you know, if we had to downsize, and it's just an office that could fit Christopher and myself, or if I, we just had to go out and have desks, we could do that. Or if we had, you know, 50 employees someday, we could do that as well, and we could still stay in this business and scale up and down. Um, and I think a, a similar concept maybe for, for some of these retail and commercial spaces. I do too. I, the, that's, I consider that an opportunity. And when you talk about incubators and you have a space for incubators, the incubators can feed off of the other incubators. I mean, you're, there may be ideas out there that have not even been fully developed, but you develop a space like you have here and you've got people exchanging ideas all the time. So I look at that as a real opportunity in really any community. Yeah, we worked on Tyler Station and what I've started calling is like a business ecosystem. I think, I don't know if Monty calls it that, but that's really what's developed there. You have a bunch of different creatives that 
do everything from film and marketing. And then it's kind of this weird cohesive. Now you have, I think, lawyers who uh, help cover those specific jobs. So a lot of the times businesses like to be around other businesses that support each other. There's definitely, um, we all have specializations, you know, ever since Henry Ford, we've been big on specialization of labor and every, everyone's good at different things. And it's important to have a lot of those people together. I think another thing that's really interesting, cause we're talking about, you know, the, having these spaces for people, but the people that create those spaces are the developers and the landowners. Cause you're not going to, and very, very, very rarely, um, are you going to have, you know, a local government come in and, you know, some, some properties are public owned, right. And you can have the city do that, but you're never really going to have the state government come in and do that. You're never really going to have, um, the federal government come in and do that. In Buda, for example, there was a property, um, where the city came in and we helped them determine what to do with their old city hall. And it was something like this. It's now an art space, which is great. But that being said, um, you kind of have to, how are we going to push the developers, right? That's the, I don't know if it's carrot stick, but it's incentivizing, right? Um, one of the things that we've toyed with is, you know, you had mentioned earlier, you said, you know, people just want to buy a property and hang on to it. And so how do you um, prevent that? Because whenever they're not improving their property, it's, it's inhibiting the value, the opportunity cost to people around them. And so, you know, uh, we like to think about, you know, like we've t toyed with land pids and Rick, Rick has uh, some great takes on that. But I, I think some of the ideas behind that are really, if you can uh, incentivize people that sitting on their property is not the best thing. And, and some of the, some of the reasons that they do that is, you know, there's a, there's a cost whenever you improve it. So if you, if you make an improvement on the property, it's actually going to cost you more in tax dollars each year. And so, you know, there's sometimes, you know, you give say, you know, well, we're not going to charge you certain taxes, but usually that goes to, you know, these big box stores and things Correct. like that. Right. You, um, you want to talk on land pits? Well, yeah. So, it's, so it's interesting. There's kind of a, a bigger idea. Um, and so I'm a big advocate of having a sort of taxing more on the land than the developments on, on the land. Um, so the, in most states, the, the state of Pennsylvania actually has state enabling legislation that just allows uh, cities to tax higher based on land than improvements. Um, the state of Texas and, and the other states don't. So there's only a handful of cities that have done this experiment, but it's, it's been very successful. Um, so if you look at the way that we, that we tax land, if I have an, an empty vacant space here in downtown Dallas, right? Um, I don't pay a lot of taxes on that on that vacant space. In fact, if I have a parking lot, a surface parking lot, um, it's still basically a vacant space. So I still don't pay a lot of taxes on it, but I can charge people for parking and I can still make revenue. Um, if I decide that I want to build a building on it, then all of a sudden my taxes go way up. So I'm incentivized if I'm in downtown Dallas to say, well, either I'm going to have an empty parking lot which I'm gonna be able to just hold forever, or I'm gonna wait until I can build a skyscraper and make a ton of money on it, and then I'll pay the taxes. There's nothing that says, oh, I'm getting killed by the taxes here, so I should build a four-story building just so that I don't lose my shirt on this, right? That is a super good point. And hearing that, are there any other states that you think that have something like that in the pipeline? Um, I, I don't. I don't know of any. I'm, I'm certainly an advocate of that, and I think not only from a practical viewpoint. So, you know, if you look at Pittsburgh, that had a land value tax, more heavily land value, 
even when they were in a lot of trouble. If you look at downtown Pittsburgh, there weren't a lot of surface parking lots or empty lots. You either build a building or you built a parking garage. Much more efficient use of, of this land. Um, I, don't, I don't think that there's the type of movement around land use tax that there should be. Um, one of the, but, but I'd like to see more. Um, and it's, it's not only a practical issue, but it's also, in a way, an, an issue of principle. Because if, I, if you're taxing me on the value of my land, you're taxing me on the value that everything around me has created for me, right? It's society has created a certain value. You've built streets, you've built infrastructure, you have other buildings around you, and my land is valuable because of that. Exactly. If I build a building on my land, you're actually taxing me for the value that I'm creating for society. You're saying you're creating this value, so you're, we're going to, to tax you. And you saw, for example, in the during the Great Depression era, you a lot of the the old buildings, for example, I know in, in in Chicago, which is I know a lot about the buildings there. You know, a lot of the old classic buildings were torn down during the Depression because people could no longer pay the taxes. So it creates a lot of very perverse incentives. Um, in lieu of having a land use tax, one of the things that we've discussed that, that we, um, from what we can figure out, seems to be something that would be legal to do in the state of Texas. Someone who's a legal expert, a land use law expert may be able to correct us here. Um, but one of the things that we've discussed is, is having a, a, a land use based, what you call a, a PID. Um, a public improvement district is, is essentially where you take a, you know, a neighborhood or a small geographic area and they agree to tax themselves a little bit extra to provide certain services for themselves. And one of the things that we've been in a lot of discussion and are looking at, at where we may have an opportunity for our clients in some way is to do a land use, uh, to implement the land use PID, uh, where you might say in a specific area of Hearst, we're going to have an extra taxing district that's just going to benefit the people in this neighborhood to provide services that they need, maybe some more security or maybe some other things could be could be used for this. But if you, it, it's based more heavily on the value of your land. So if you build something here, you're not going to be penalized for, for building something or for developing your property as much. That's true. And I can see the reverse when Christopher was talking about how do you get someone that is just merely holding on to property well, a lot of what we have talked about in the city of Hearst is, well, if you build something really cool here, then eventually something really cool will pop up across the street. But that is that does take take some time. So I, yeah, we've been toying with this idea of activation inertia or the lack of activity happening and and how it's really the, the hardest step is kind of that first one, because once you can get the ball rolling, you know, other exactly. things will happen. But right. the question is, how do you get that first ball rolling? Because a lot of the time people don't want to be the experimenter. You know, it's one thing to experiment on a, on a canvas. It's another thing to build a building. And, uh, it is. you know, that's a little <laughs> bit more permanent. And it's, it's, it's difficult um, because, you know, you're, we are asking in some instances, like, you know, how, how you, you never know exactly how something's going to turn out. Um, but you can do performers, you can make estimates, you know, you, I, ideally you want the, the high point to be, to be high enough that, uh, it, you know, if it does work out that it's definitely, it's more than worth it. And if it doesn't work out, you're not going to lose your shirt. And so the question is really, you know, how, how do we as a society, 
um, promote that? How do we promote good stewardship of the land? Because, you know, there's good ways to do things and there's bad ways to do things. And, you know, I think it's one of those we talk about, you know, urban fabric, urban feel. You know it when you feel it. You know it when you see it. You know, you can say you have a high thread count on a, on, on, a, on sheets, but then you get in them and you're like, this is, you know, That's then you read it. It's not, it's not a thousand <laughs> threads. And so, you know, how do we make sure that people are doing good things with their land? And, and you know, if we, if we make it more costly to just sit on a property, then that incentivizes people to do something with it. And, and I've, I'm a big, big proponent of this idea that if, if you are there, especially if you own property where you live, which I would highly recommend, like people that we talk to that are developers are always saying, you know, unless you're a large, you know, conglomerate or large corporation that has a bunch of different entities, you have to still have someone on the ground where you own the property. And you, you're going to know that area better than almost anybody else. You know, Monty likes to call it your farm, you know, know your backyard, you know, stay in your backyard because you, you know, the people there, you know, the butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker, you know, who's going to be good at having like, uh, who's going to create good businesses. And, um, therefore you're best able to create the space. You know, if someone comes in from out of town, they don't know anybody here, you know, they don't know anybody where they're coming in. So it's really important to, um, incentivize the people there locally, which it kind of gets into the incremental development stuff. Um, but yeah, it's really, how do we, how do we incentivize local people who know, who know their backyard to do well, these I, things? I think that as, as the strong town movement grows, I think a lot of city um, staff, city government, people like myself are more in, in tune to those kind of things and in discussing it, kind of spreading the word, discussing it with, you know, that's one of the things we did with the Bel Air Shopping Center. We got to know those shopping center owners. We talked about the possibilities. And sometimes that hasn't even been thought of. But once you put the idea out there, maybe it can grow. Yeah, and this goes back to what we said with, you know, you have five citizens show up and say, we don't want to have this dilapidated shopping center down the street. We want to be able to walk there. Maybe there's a small grocery store. Uh, you know, you got to be careful with stuff like that. You got to make sure it's appropriate for, for the neighborhood. But you know, you want it very much, um, and you know, how do we bring about good changes? And, and when people speak up, you know, and let, let their voice be heard and know that people do, you know, if you're a developer, you want to hear, you know, I will shop here every day. Cause then you can tell someone that's going to move in, they're going to come here every day, which means you're going to get rent every, every month and it's sustainable. And as a city council person, you want to hear that too. You know, you, like you were mentioning earlier, like you really do you guys listen because it's local government. And, you know, I get incredibly frustrated with the show out turnout for Dallas elections, which is like 5%, which is insane. Um, not to get too political, but you wonder why we've had some corruption problems is it's, we have 5% turnout in our city, which is terrible, you know, um, the well, worst the city, of any big city in the country. Yeah. Is it really? Yeah. yeah. Well, the city officials become more and more known to, to locals. I think that they will, get out more and I just think that that is what what has to happen is that city officials do need to get out and be more part of the community and ask questions I mean I do that a lot ask questions because I want to know what their ideas are and we've got some citizens out there with fabulous ideas they just don't know where to go do you think so for like a larger city such as Dallas which is I guess a couple orders of magnitude bigger than Hearst 
So I guess you have we have roughly a, little, a few more city council people, but it's it's going to be a lot harder for them to go and it visit people. It is going people. to be more difficult. Do you think larger cities have to rethink the way that they do local government in order to do listen to the people better? Because it's just like, what's your opinion on on that? Because it, it would be difficult for them to listen to it at the same percentage of the population that you're able to do. Well, that is difficult for larger cities, uh, but I think that in the larger cities, the way they elect city council is that they take a, see in Hearst, we're all at large. Mm -hmm. That means I'm involved in all of Hearst, but in larger cities, I believe they are elected by district. Right, right. So they do already have a, a mm. mechanism in place yeah. for being with the smaller, yeah. but then again, that serves it, its own issues because if this city council person is doing well over here, mm -hmm. So that can also work against them, but that—that's, you know, one of the things that's in effect right now. And I believe Dallas and uh, Fort Worth both have that type of city council election. You know, it's it's interesting because I mean I think the first thing that is is maybe surprising is that having lived in in both Fort Worth and Dallas, and and uh, but even in Dallas. Um, it's easier to meet these people or run into these people if you're pretty active than you might think. It is. Um, you know, I know a lot of council people from Dallas and especially from the, the core of the core neighborhoods of Dallas. Um, I know some of the current and former council people pretty well. Um, I think that there is um, an unintended or, or at least um, negative consequence in some ways to having the council districts be geographically limited um, because, and especially when you have cities that have, you know, areas which face very, very different sets of concerns, um, you can have uh, part, you know, council people, for example, in Dallas and in, in these very suburban parts of the city who I think don't have a lot of relation to the, the people who are, you know, the issues that are dealt with in the core um, or the, you know, for example, representatives in northern Dallas who might not be able to relate a lot to the concerns in southern Dallas. So I think that there's some some issues. It's with just that. not very cohesive that and, way. Yeah, and you know, one of the things that is is true in Dallas, but is is very very true, for example, in Fort Worth, um, you have uh, one council representative, Ann Zeta, who who basically represents almost all of the places that you, you might have more intensive active you know sort of urbanism whether it's the west seventh area um downtown fort worth the near south side uh some of the other areas like rush street in the university area are all represented by one council representative uh what that means is that this area that is a lot of the image of the city that's a very disproportionate amount of the economic development doesn't really have a lot of council representation so you have issues like the um the streetcar uh which was voted down in fort worth that i think if if you had had at large representation um more of the council would have seen that's it in their point, interest Rick. to have the streetcar yes. so yes um it's it's i i think that the way that Texas cities tend to sprawl. The the annexation laws mean that in cities, in the bigger cities in Texas, you have a lot of areas that are suburban or even rural um, that don't necessarily see their interests as being aligned with the core of the city. Correct. I so, agree. So there's there's something to be said for for at large. I guess. Sorry, I'm off on I'm off on a a bit of a tangent. There is here. something to be said for at large. I yeah. I would 
much I much prefer being that way because I am talking to everyone in the community. I don't have to feel like I have a special interest in one part of the community. It's everybody. It's 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 interesting to me that we saw not only some a lot of really positive leadership among um, the council, but I think that that there's definitely uh, several city staff people um, and Hearst. Um, you know, just the fact that they hired a firm like ours. Uh, tells you that they they think a little differently. Can you talk a little bit about maybe some of the experience with city staff and where you've seen, um, you know, it, it maybe experienced kind of a, a little bit more, uh, more innovation or a little bit different perspective in some cases? Well, the city staff being involved, one of the good examples is the pop-up events that we had. So many of them got involved. I mean, even to the extent of cutting wood and <laughs> and sanding wood and nailing it together. So that is the energy that I think that they bring to the city. And we also, uh, you know, Hearst being uh, older in the in the Metroplex area, we have kind of had a turnover. I mean, about the time that I came on a couple of years ago, it was just a year or two before that that we got a new city manager. And then uh, we've now split to where we have assistant city managers instead of just uh, just the one. And they have brought on new ideas like, you know, here I go with art again, but there is public art being discussed. and just different innovative ideas. I believe that they're always looking for innovation and they, I think, are the kind of people that are just willing to try anything and they particularly want to listen to citizens and we do have our advisory boards that are a lot more active now and they interact with the city staff and the city staff, I believe at this point, is encouraging them to even go to be more interactive with the people in their neighborhoods. So I have seen a lot of um, a lot of innovation, a lot of really trying from the city staff, and I'm very pleased with that. Yeah, it was cool to see even the city manager being so involved with literally oh, taking know. things out of trucks and Clay, directly right. being involved with, <laughs> with the pop-up and everything like that, more than more than we've probably seen. In yes, and other, then, uh, you know, the guys uh-huh. that help us uh, populate those things right. with the barricades and everything, they stay around, they have a good time, they go to the food truck, so... It's been very inspiring for me as a city council person to see that. I'd like to get your opinion on, so neighborhoods, just generally neighborhoods, you know, whether it's typical suburban or really anywhere in a more urban context. I feel like that over the past, I don't know, decade, two decades, that we're more disconnected physically in our neighborhoods than we used to be, um, probably because of the internet, but maybe not. Like, what's your... what? Do you feel that way? Or do you, do you say not, not, that hasn't been your experience or... Do you know your neighbors the same? I don't know when you moved last, or do you do you know them the same? Do you know them better? Like, do you feel like we're less connected than we used to be physically? I mean, yeah, you can talk to people all the time online, but I do. I feel like we are more disconnected, and uh, one of the th- that's where the walkability comes in. Right. I think that we really got to the point where everything was so automobile centered. Mm-hmm. And in Hearst, you know, one of the things that we've talked about is more bike paths, more sidewalks. Mm -hmm. But really, when you talk about sidewalks, I mean, I'm noticing sidewalks now all the time because I think, okay, is this walkable? Could I walk from here to Northeast Mall? Could I walk from here to the local donut shop? And most of the times, we we couldn't. And some of that is because on some of our main thoroughfares, like Highway 10 and Pipeline and even Bedford-Ulis, there are no sidewalks. You know, we're working right now to put some some fabulous looking medians in in 
there and, and I'm wondering about the walkability as those are concerned but I just think that that really is a term that is so important for every city to look at can where can you walk to yeah. where can this neighborhood you know function right. can you go to a little store can you go to the community theater from here yeah. without using an automobile so yes Christopher I do think that it's gotten uh, a little bit more where we all stay in our own little little home and and don't get out as much unless we travel by car and I would like to see it more more bikes more walking I'd love to yeah bikes biking like as a kid we biked everywhere and now now I don't think kids bike as much as they used to or they're not allowed we're not given the freedom um that or a lot of the time I don't think kids are given the same freedom and I don't know if the safety is an issue yeah safety everyone's worried right uh, but we have cell phones, and now you can be instantly updated on your kid's status. But. Oh, isn't that wonderful? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, you know, and, and of course, I, I think that if you look at the statistics, um, you know, the, the biggest safety risk to kids walking or biking around is probably getting hit by a car. So, um, and, and um, which is, you know, which is more of a risk than it would have been. You know, when I was six years old and walking and biking around in, in Cincinnati and you had kind of, you know, a neighborhood that was meant for walking and biking and things like that, that that I lived in. And, you know, the whole issue of walkability um, is interesting because certainly sidewalks is, are a part of that. But, you know, it's very hard to retrofit walkability in a place that wasn't originally built for it. It is. It's you know? very hard. And so, so when you be, look at new development yeah. or redevelopment, right. you know, that's sort of the thing I always think of. As I said, driving down the street, where's the sidewalk? And could I walk to that new business? So it, it is difficult. You know, I'm, I'm, really, I'm really passionate. You mentioned a couple of things. You mentioned walkability and aging population. And I think we've talked about this. I am very passionate about, you know, uh, my, my family, my mom and dad are boomers. And uh, my grandparents were the greatest generation. And I remember when uh, they took away my grandma and grandpa's car keys yes. and what a big deal that was. And my grandmother used to walk every day until she, uh, I think she broke her hip or something, which is, I know she broke her arm, which they wouldn't even heal. Um, but I think she still walked. I don't, she had a bunch of medical, you know, as you age, you get a lot of medical issues. But um, they could, they were still coherent. They just weren't allowed to, to drive anymore. And uh, I even remember, um, you know, my grandpa couldn't see, and my the, he was like, "Well, I'll give I'll give directions, and, and she can drive." You know, it was like this. <laughs> they'll, they'll team they'll team team, team drive. driving team driving oh, and, yeah. and they so they took their keys and they put them in this lockbox. And I said, "Don't give me the code. I'll I'll give it to them," because you know I I definitely you know my grandma said she felt like she was in a prison. And I think the last thing we want, you know, I don't want to have to have that same conversation with my mom. I'm trying to get her to move to a more walkable neighborhood. She's in typical suburbia. And, you know, at a certain point, she's not going to be able to drive anymore. That's many, many years down the road. My mom's a very, very young woman. <laughs> but, you know. Yeah, about my age, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Right about Cindy's age. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm very passionate about making sure that there's a walkable neighborhood, even though I feel like there's a lot of pushback from the boomer generation or the aging generation. And it's interesting because you, you mentioned Hearst has an aging generation and there's not a lot of walkability. 
And I'd like to see a bigger push. Like you're seeing it, you're seeing that because you have a bigger perspective. And <laughs> I think it'd be great for, you know, there to be a push towards, you know, this is going to be important because at some point your car keys are going mean, to, at some point my car keys will get taken away unless everything is cars are self-driving or something at that point. I don't know. But, well, that ties in with the whole affordable housing issue. And you talked about apartments earlier. And as I do talk to baby boomers that seem to be stuck in that era of, you know, I bought my house at a, at a good price. I'm going to be fine. When you do start saying, but, well, what about could your kids or your grandkids afford your home now? Or where are you going to go when you're no longer able to drive? It does, I believe people are understanding that that's going to be a problem, especially when you look at the different um, business models for older assisted living, right. things like that, and the cost of mm -hmm. that and some Very of the high. issues we're going to have with that. And, of course, you know, here I go. But that could get into accessory dwelling units in cities. And there's just so many different factors that and people just need to know that there are there are alter alternatives. Yeah. Go real. Go with that. Like accessory dwelling units. Like what do you love about that? Well, what I love about that is, as a matter of fact, my mom, I have a special needs little brother and my mom and my little brother live behind me. My mom built a house there. And uh, this has been about six years ago now. And everyone that sees this arrangement, you know, they want to know how they, they can do it as well. Now, in Hearst, I live in kind of a unique area where I had two acres. And so it was not that big of a problem. But so many cities have a, uh, a zoning requirement of so many feet, and you can't have a bathroom and a kitchen and things like that. And we are now seeing, um, like there's a lady in our city in her 60s that, that lives with her daughter and takes care of the grandchildren. Mm -hmm. And at night, she would like to be able to just go out in her backyard and have her own space. Yeah. So the city of Hearst is looking at that. Yeah. Uh, I think we've loosened up in some areas because mm -hmm. it used to have to be uh, the same uh, exterior, maybe connection to the roof. Mm -hmm. But I think that that's going to be a really interesting area. and. You know, there's going to be problems that come with that. People talk about parking on some of these streets, but then again, you talk about when you're older, you don't have you don't have a car, <laughs> right? So it's just very interesting. I mean, I think I think that this that this brings up you know two two very interesting and important issues. I mean, the the first one um, I've had a lot of interest in looking at the the disability legislation that we have in this country and. Uh, the, the ADA and so forth. And what has shocked me is that in most other industrialized countries, you know, we passed the ADA in 1990. We have very strong disability legislation. Um, places like Canada and Europe are just starting to catch up to where we were 30 years ago, which really surprises me. Um, so we have this, on the one hand, this society that has said, you know, even if it's more expensive, we're going to make places more accessible to people who have disabilities. And, you know, if you have a disability and you drive a car, um, we'll make sure that you have the best parking space. Um, and at the same time, you know, if you have a, a disability and you can't drive a car, whether that's something that just happens to you during the course of your life or you know, you reach a certain age and that's, you know, part of the process of aging that you have to have your keys taken away from you. 
Um, it amazes me that that we seem to not have as much concern of, as a society. Like it doesn't seem to be, you know, well, why are we creating a situation where my, my grandmother or grandfather is going to lose their independence because they can no longer drive and, and why aren't we creating alternatives for them? Um, and it's interesting because this is even the, the AARP, um, I know has has gotten more and more involved in recent years over things like having a variety of housing, over things like walkability. Like they've become advocates of that, and they have a lot of of research that they've done with that. And I think it's 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 a very important issue. Like you'll see even you know things where um, there'll be you know bike lanes put in, and you'll see a lot of people saying, well, you know. Can, can disabled people use these bike lanes? And it's like, well, it's not for everybody, but did you ask if, if disabled people can drive a car? Because I know many who can't, and it has a huge negative impact on their, on their lives. Um, well, those are some areas where they do have some unique solutions. You talk about the AARP and uh, the solutions that they're looking for, uh, house sharing. You know, things like that. But that may mean that a developer needs to buy. And I think a lot of developers are starting to focus on that, beginning to look for ways to, <coughs> excuse me, to add, uh, you know, like a mutual kitchen kind of area. Just things like that, the different way that people want to live as they age. And as you guys know, the baby boomer generation is getting older yeah. and it's really starting to be an issue. So I think we'll see more and more uh, inventive ideas like that, and the cities have to, to get with it with their codes and the things that they do to help that before aging it, in place. Yeah, before it happens. Right, before it happens. The other area it touches on, and this is something I wanted to talk to you about anyway, but we've already, we've already gotten into this, is, is the issue of housing. And I know that there's some, some hot-button issues, and you know, one of the things I think about is are zoning codes in general but especially the zoning codes of places that developed when Hearst developed. The era of the car. Yeah, the era of the car. Um, automobile. Of the automobile. <laughs> um, the, especially that, it, it kind of assumes that everybody has the same housing needs at, at all times in their life. Um, and a lot of times I'll have discussions with people about you know X, Y, or Z housing, and people say like, well, I don't think this would be a, a great place, a great way to raise kids. And, and, you know, whether or not that's true, if you look at the statistics, most people at any given time do not have children in their household. You know, so you have a lot of people who are single, who may be single parents, who may be older, who may, you know, whatever their arrangement is. And we don't have a great setup for housing that that is really thinking about where are people at various times of their life and what type of housing might they need? And that might be creating some issues in, in places like hers. Can you talk a little about well, that? Well, it or? is because, again, not to pick on baby boomers because I am one, but we grew up in an era where uh, the automobile was coming in and people were moving out to the suburbs and they were able to, you know, it was like, here's where you live, here's where you shop, and here's where you work. And that, you know, we thought that was that was the best, that was the best model. But as housing prices are rising, not everyone can afford the housing. And as baby boomers are aging, not everyone can afford to stay in their homes or even want to. And then we have the idea of, especially the millennial generation, that, you know, no longer do we even have a community 
like Bell Helicopter that has a stable job until you decide to retire, a lot of them have to move. They may not want the investment of a home anyway. And as you said, Rick, they, not everyone's having having children, especially at the ages that, you know, younger ages, they may wait until later. And so they don't want to have to take care of property. They want to be close to some place that they can walk. So there are a lot of different challenges for that. And one of the biggest challenges um, <coughs> is having people even want to think about it, mm -hmm. have to understand that it's gonna have to change, you know, if, if, if an apartment wants to come in. Well, I've often said, in fact, I asked our city council about this one time. I said, can we like think of another word for apartments? Right. Because it's just such a negative connotation. Superhouses. Superhouses, <laughs> that sounds good. Uh, because that is the way a lot of people want to live now. And it's not necessarily, uh, you know, the newest apartment complex that we have. Again, I can't think of another word. Uh, but it's got so many amenities. It's, uh, you can go and get your resume done. You can be in the entertainment room. You know, there's just, that is a community feel. And so that is not, should not be a negative thing for the neighborhood. That is bringing people in that maybe do work at Northeast Mall. Right. Uh, people that do live or work in Dallas but want to be in the Metroplex. So, but it, the most difficult thing is just to get people to think of housing in a different way. The boon is no longer here with the 50s and the 60s where you're able, well, think about how far you have to move out of the Metroplex to even get, get any pieces of land now. I mean, right. you have to move quite a distance, so. You know, there's, there's this guy, um, uh, Joe Minicosi, um, who's, who's kind of a leader within the strong town circles and everything like that. And he does a thing where he asks people, how many people here would want to live in a 500 square foot apartment? and very few people raised their hands, right? And he said, okay, how many people here have ever lived in a 500 square foot apartment? And most people raised their hands, you know, or a dorm or something like that. Like at some point in their life, they were, they were 18 or they it was were in necessary. college. Or they were, and, and they lived there and it was necessary. And, you know, if, if someone had said, you know, you can't live in a dorm, you have to have your own house, they would have they might not have been able to go to college or they might not have been able to pay their rent if if it had been if it had been kind of micromanaged a like difficult that. choice if, a difficult right. choice and it's it's interesting because um you know we are a society that that values property rights in a lot of ways um but you'll see a lot of the conversation really I think maybe micromanaging who can live in a community or or how they can live in a community um, in a way that might kind of undermine a lot of the ways of that we think of ourselves as a, as a property rights society um, you know to say you can't have a you know you can't have your grandmother living in a, a separate house behind your house um, have you have you kind of observed a lot of that or well, I have, and actually that's kind of another difficult thing because while I am a big proponent of accessory dwelling units, um, I also understand, and I stay in Airbnbs myself, right. but right now in a, in a lot of cities, that that's a big property rights mm -hmm. question because you would like for people to be able to supplement their income or things like that, but... It's one of those things where almost be careful what you wish for because it's what a lot of communities are experiencing are not the, the guy that, the baby boomer that decided I'm gonna downsize and I'll lease out my house for Airbnb, right. but 
the developer that comes in and buys up all of the property and that's all it's used for and they once again that's someone that doesn't live in the community so um, yeah the property rights thing just enters into a lot of different aspects of it and it's difficult to to make a rule for it because right. no there's no rule 101 I mean you just have to look at everything on an individual mm -hmm. basis yeah, you know, and and it's it's we do, um, you know, we all we, we have had zoning in this country for a long time, and it does. It, it, there's a consensus around having zoning or rules that are like zoning. It's just a matter of 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 picking the battles. Uh, the Airbnb thing, um, you know, it's it's interesting because you do see um, communities struggling with it, and you do see different ways that they're they're looking at regulating it or looking at. Um, sort of taxing it or licensing it or things like that is has is Hearst looking at anything particular to deal with the the unintended consequences of that right now? Well, the the story behind uh, Hearst as a city council, we did decide decide to actually ban Airbnb. Okay. And uh, a lot of citizens thought it was a really premature decision. I don't know. Okay. Um, that, because that's a difficult decision because what we were experiencing was um, party houses oh. people that were part of a neighborhood that every weekend you know maybe they had a pool and people were just out and so that that talks about you know as big as I am on community right that takes away from the community feel when when that is able to happen in a neighborhood because you did buy it as a single family home right. and while i do believe in some zoning changes uh that's still i grapple with that and and everyone does you know i think texas right now is in fact their next legislative session may be something to do with what the state should do so it's it's an issue that's really got no easy answer they're talking about state legislation for airbnb i think so yeah. that's, that's interesting yeah, you know, I think of, for example, so I don't, I don't have a lot of knowledge specifically about about Airbnb, uh, you know, city specific Airbnb legislation. But I do know, you know, when I was in Austin, it was very clear to me that everybody was very licensed and inspected and things like that who was doing an Airbnb. So it wasn't, and a lot of other places, you get the sense it's very loosey goosey. Well, here's or, the issue, Rick. One of the things, you know, when this is, you asked me much earlier in the conversation, what are some of my aha moments right. as a city council person? It's like, oh my gosh, look at all the different effects that were caused by this one decision. Right. That particular thing, yes, you can make codes, you can make ordinances, you can tell someone that they have to do this and this, but guess what? That means that when they don't, somebody's got to go out there with code enforcement. Mm -hmm. Somebody's got to go out yeah. there as far as our, our local, um, you know, the policing mm -hmm. and things like that. So that what does that, you know, the effect of that is more code enforcement hours, more policing hours, uh, possibly in a raise in taxes. I mean, so everything does. Uh, you do have to look at all the effects that one thing can cause and just decide which one you think is more palatable. Do, do you think um, Airbnb is an interesting one? Because I can, I can see that if you're having parties next door all the time that you wouldn't want that. But do you think, you know, money would, if you said, okay, well, you're going to have to charge an extra... $20 a night and you're going to have to share that with your neighbors. Is that something the neighbors, 
do you think is this one of those things where there's not really an well there's always an amount of money you know if you said we're gonna give you a million dollars a week <laughs> i think the neighbors would be like okay we're okay with this but do you do you think that there's like a, a small amount or do you think it's 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 kind of a we got kids we have kids and we don't we don't want that or do you think it's one of those things where you could say you know what charge an extra 100 bucks and if you can still get people to come here and you share that extra hundred with your neighbors to compensate them for the infringement on their you know so-called fences that um that they have you know because everybody has property rights but when your rights infringe on other someone else's that's whenever this you know government gets involved right well it is and that's an uh, you know that's an interesting discussion as far as me personally what i would feel if i'm in a neighborhood right um and like as i said understanding that people that are homeowners may need to supplement income I wish that there was some way to, uh, maybe it's someone that lives in the community or if it's your home. I just am very concerned about any type of compensation rather than keeping it a, a, something that is good for my community. Mm -hmm. You know, because as I said, one of the biggest issues, I mean, we have people calling the city of Hearst saying, what have you done with this? Because it's a developer that wants to start buying property and turn it into that. So that's, you know, when I think about Airbnb, I think what would be palatable to me is keeping it, helping my community. You know, the, the, the lady, the, the baby boomer that's decided that they want to downsize and they still want so that they would have more of a, um, they would be more willing to deal with codes and more willing to, you know, sometimes with these, uh, even the people that lease the Airbnbs cannot con can't get in touch with the people that they leased it from. So mm. I just hate to see that kind of be out of our control. But right. That's interesting. Yeah, we had a, I won't say which city, but whenever we, we work in cities, we like to stay. If it's outside of DFW, we'll stay in the city. And we always stay in that city because we understand hot taxes and all those sorts of things. So um, we recently stayed in an Airbnb in a city we were working in. And the mayor asked us where we stayed last night. And we've stayed in different hotels in the city. And uh, we told them we stayed at Airbnb. She goes, oh, well, that's really interesting. Uh, they're illegal in our, in our city. <laughs> and we were like, oh. Uh, what Airbnb? I, what Airbnb? Yeah. Yes, we'll see. That's, so but that, if nobody complains, exactly. then, you know, there's, there's. no one complains. Yeah. In fact, we brought it up with the Airbnb owner. And he's like, oh, don't get it changed. I've got it figured out. <laughs> we're like, because I don't think he wanted any competition. Oh, wow. So, but it's just, it's, it's really interesting. It is really it is interesting. a very, you know, it's, it's kind of like the Uber of, of rentals in a, in a way it's very, it's more personalized than the taxis, but at the same time, you know, you get some crazy stuff. We, happening. You know, we have got some tough decisions ahead of us, don't we, Christopher, as a society and just to, uh, you know, to keep every, everyone employed and housed. Well, yeah. the, I mean, <laughs> when you think about it, I mean, the internet's what's changed everything, right? right? Because you know, 30 years ago, how were you going to know someone in Hearst? Ha if you're looking for a party house, how do you know a random, you know, it'd be, you actually know the person you're like, Hey, can I use your house? And they probably say, well, no, <laughs> but now you have the internet and Airbnb has got all their legal documentation or whatever. And now you go, well, I know that they put their credit card in there. And if they did something then I can charge it extra. And, and see, they've become so large. They're, they're their own lobbying source to right. states as well. So yeah, that's interesting. And by the way, if you go before, before that, um, <laughs> you had a lot of these things that were done uh, that you see now that were done more informally when you had different types of societies. So, you know, it used to be 
Um, people would hitchhike and that was a much safer thing to do. Um, I also remember that you would be in a, you know, um, uh, you know, sometimes someone would be in a grocery store and you'd have, you know, informally you'd have a, someone drive you in a cab somewhere. So, I mean, I think these are the, this is like the electronicization of some things that, um, that you already had maybe a long time ago, uh, but now it's more standardized and, and everybody can find, can find everybody. So it's a little bit, it's a little bit interesting. Um, I have a question uh, because Hearst is a place that that surprised me once I got to know it. HEB had some pleasant surprises. Um, what are what's something that you wish people knew about Hearst? Well, of course, I'm very partial to our community theater. Oh yeah. And so the Artisan has, uh, you know, some wonderful productions there. They also have some wonderful programs for children mm -hmm. uh, that are in the performing arts and. That's the largest community theater in Texas, right? I, be I believe it is the largest. It's the largest Texas. community theater in Texas, and I think even calling it a community theater almost doesn't do it justice for, right. for, it the, needs for the caliber name. of what That's they have. True. It's, That's it, true. It is a community theater, but it's it's of a much higher caliber, I think, than than a community theater typically would be. And just you know the the feasibility of of living and visiting there from Dallas Fort Worth because it is just really in that hub. So, and a lot of times people pass through Hearst without even knowing it. Yeah. So you should get off the freeway. <laughs> yes. You know, it, it's interesting related to the, the artisan. Um, you know, one of the things that I was thinking, you know, first of all, um, even just at the Bel Air, um, you have not only the artisan and you have not only, you know, Central Arts, which is a fantastic place, but you have several really unique businesses, you know, I mean, among other things, you have two African stores in this, in this little strip mall, like how cool is that? And these, these little ethnic restaurants in this great, um, you have this wonderful antique store with this tea room and, and, you know, lots of other things. And if you look at a little bit, you know, greater radius, one of the things I thought is if I could take things, you know, from within, uh, a half mile of here and, and pick what I had and, and lay it out in a way that would be, um, you know, like a, a, a Bishop Arch or something like that. It would be one of the coolest neighborhoods in Dallas. Like you have a lot of really cool assets, but they're not arranged in a way that people would necessarily recognize that. Boy, that is so true. And, and pardon me, all, all, everything I've talked about is Bel Air, but within that radius, we do have some really wonderful, we have Smart Parts, which is a, a beading store and uh, has wonderful classes. And we have another uh, Cali Pop Vinyl, which is just right down the street. And even in Bedford, we have a wonderful nonprofit called Awareness Project and we have Mission Central. So that is a very, um, when you look at it, it could be cohesive. It's just hard to figure out how to how to make it cohesive. I've even talked about, let's, let's have an art car that just tours people around from place to place so that they know this, this, little, this little ride and all the different things that you can do. I, yeah, we discussed that a little bit. I forgot about that idea. I think it's a fantastic one. Do you? Yeah, I, I really do. Because I can't get anybody else to buy in. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, okay. I'm not on counselor right, staff, say, so I can't help you. But um, no, I, I think that that's a, a fantastic idea. And I think that, um, you know, these, these assets are so cool. And there's probably a lot of people who aren't necessarily inclined to, to go to Fort Worth 
or Dallas a lot, but if they knew that they had all of these things within this distance and the leadership that the city is taking to to take steps, like I think that could be a, a foundation. Well, you know what? Here's another thing that I that I left out and should not have is our Hearst Conference Center. Mm -hmm. You know, that is another reason why I thought that develop while we thought that developing the arts because we have so many people come to the Hearst Conference Center, and we have more hotels and things now, and they have shuttles. And to make that uh, people will stay like the whole, you know, several days. And so what can you do at night in Hearst? And those are kind of some of the things that we could make use of because Hearst has done very well with their conference center. And, you know, maybe, maybe that is, I mean, I know that there's already been ta steps taken toward that. Maybe to really think about taking that to the next step because you are in a situation, as we've discussed, where you have more space than anybody's going to be able to use. Um, you know, and I can tell you as someone who, you know, I lived in, in Fort Worth um, and my, my ex-wife, you know, I helped her with this. She had a, a holography studio in Fort Worth um, and it was hard to find space in Fort Worth. You know, we, we went, tried to go to downtown or near Southside. You can't afford that. There's no way. West 7th, we couldn't afford that. You know, we had to go to that Ray Street area that was kind of budding at the time. Um, so if this is, if, if maybe a part of Hearst is branded more heavily as being a place where you can go and you can have an art gallery or other artistic things, and it is, there's a, a spectrum, so you can incubate something, you can be, you know, you can have maybe one building that has a lot of little people or something, live work situations, that type of flexibility. And then there's something where you have an art car, you know, I could see getting to the point where you have 15 studios plus, you know, maybe another little theater or other art spaces. Yeah, kind of a little tour Hearst situation, art tour. Yeah. I mean, I could, I could see this becoming really a creative cultural hub and especially with the, the ethnic diversity of stuff that you have there. Um, where you have a lot of different different cultures in the same place, um, I think that that there could be an opportunity to do something very special. Um, and you already have a lot of the businesses and stuff there as it is. I do too. As I've mentioned, opportunity several times. That is something that I'm really looking forward to. Is the opportunity that we have with these small businesses and the things that we've already been able to accomplish and just getting more citizens on board and. You know, I appreciate that, that that is what your firm is all about. So thank you. Awesome. Art car. Yeah. That, that's, 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 I think, a keystone. <laughs> we, uh, before we started, you guys were going off on Jane Jacobs and Strong Towns. I don't remember what got it started, but I was like, whoa, 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 hold up until we start recording. So you were talking about Jane uh, who? Never heard of her. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. She wrote some book like a long, many moons ago. Oh, 1961, I believe it was. Yeah. Death and Life of Great American Cities. There you yeah. go. But you were talking about innovation and... Well, a lot of hers was the concern for the communal neighborhood model, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah. Well, it's... it's. Um, I think the, the conversation that we were having before um, was me really um, talking to Cindy about how I felt like this is a very special time in the evolution of ideas about um, cities and urbanism and, and placemaking and, and so forth, um, that I really have the sense that ideas are evolving um, at, at this really expedited rate. And, you know, I was having a conversation 
Um, a couple days ago, I came in, Monty Anderson, I go down to his office in downtown Duncanville, you know, on a, a Saturday or Sunday every couple months and just, just chat with him for, for three, four hours. And we have these great conversations. And we were having this conversation. I was telling Cindy that, that I was saying probably couldn't have been had by anybody two or three years ago. In other words, the ideas are evolving so quickly um, that that new uh, new things can be pushed through that we wouldn't have been able to think because it's it's such a changing industry. And I just read this book um, by uh, by Chuck Marone of you know of Strong Towns, um, amazing book that he just came oh, out great with, book. and, I love and that. you know one of one of the best I've read in a long long time. But I was thinking if that book had come out three or four years ago. Not it, it would have not only been a great leap, it would have been equal to the leap that Jane Jacobs made when she wrote Death and Life in, in 1961, which uh, if anybody listening to this hasn't hasn't read Death and Life of Great American Cities, um, it, it's it's a book that I find still to be very, very relevant today. And, and it's just a, an amazing quantum leap that she made. Um, and I think Chuck made a great leap, but I think that if he had done it four years ago, it would have been an equal leap. Uh, and too. the only reason why it's not is because these ideas are evolving so quickly. And well, he's already so put people on the path of reimagining. I mean, there was imagination yeah. when you started building all these towns, but now this reimagination, that, I think that was a little bit more difficult, but it is coming, coming to fruition, and his book has been a, is, is a big help. Yeah, and, and his, his podcast and everything like that, I, I definitely um, recommend people check it out. And one of the things that I think he and other people are part of is, is rediscovering a lot of very timeless principles that we used to understand unconsciously and forgot, um, at least in, in this society for a long time, and now we're understanding them consciously. Um, so it used to be at one point that, you know, as he points out, um, he lives in this town, Brainerd, Minnesota, and if you look at old photos you know, from, from 70 years ago or whatever, it was just this beautiful, beautiful town. Um, and he says, this was done by illiterate lumberjacks. They didn't have degrees from Harvard. They, intuitive, you know, they, intuitive living. It, yeah. was, it was intuitive, but it was also, I think, a set of principles that we discovered by trial and error over thousands of years, that we built our cities according to these and that they solved a lot of problems and that we were so close to it that we were able to understand it. And, and now we're having to consciously go back and rediscover these things um, that, that make humans feel really good. You know, when you go through an old Main Street, there's specific reasons that were discovered by trial and error that, that make you feel good. And now we're starting to actually understand that, that technology. That's true, and what Christopher said earlier about do, do we feel that neighborhoods are you know, losing that connectivity? So now we're consciously understanding that, yes, we, as humans, we need that connectivity. We need that social gathering. Yeah, the word that I've come up, for lack of a better word, I've started saying membrane whenever you talk about like a main street because this idea of being able to see and like go in and out of the different shops, but also look through the shops and see what's going on. It's kind of like the cell membrane where you want to have things go in and out that you want. You want to be able to kind of see what's going on. 
and this this you know uh, to me it says you know it's open it's but it's accessible but it's also a barrier right it's an intentional <laughs> barrier but it's one that's very open if you're walking by and you say oh look at that or you're walking by and you're like, well, right. that's walking, interesting. Walking by, not driving. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. If you're driving yeah. by, you're, yeah. And, and also, you know, going back to the street stuff, slowing down the cars. Um, you know, I, I, when I was younger, I liked to drive faster and I would have been like, oh, why are they making me slow down here? But, you know, for these, you don't, you, you don't have to drive down every street, you know, and, and in these streets, you should, we, should, we need to slow people down, you know, because if people are walking, you know, you don't want to worry about kids running in the street. You don't want to worry about people getting hit by cars. And if the cars are going slow enough, it's, it's really easy to break when you're going 30 miles an hour. It's very difficult to break when you're going 45. More right? pedestrian-centric rather yeah. than car-centric. Yeah. I agree. And a lot of that, we, we did some work on uh, right-sizing streets with PPS. And, it, you know, you just see that the fatalities go down, that the speed, the, really the speed goes down, which solves a lot of it. Because these are giant vehicles going, you know, the, the, there's a lot of P equals, there's a lot of momentum. There's a lot of mass. There's a lot of velocity behind these cars. And, you know, as even if you have, you know, split second reaction times, sometimes things happen and you just, if you slow the car down, we don't like to go slow. We have these cars that go, you know, hundred. Everything can go 120 miles an hour now. Right. Back in the day, I don't, I don't think that was the case. But you know, all of our cars can go 120 at least. But we don't really get to do that anywhere. And the worst place for that would be like a main street. You know, I'm not saying you know maybe the highway, certain highway, the autobahn. We don't have an autobahn, unfortunately. Under 635 is kind of like that. But <laughs> no comment. Um, but I think it's interesting, uh, you know, the, that cell membrane and and how we how we look at wanting to, we want to see, you know, uh, I remember the Jerry Seinfeld, I think talking about how we have the little holes in the construction. So all the guys can see what's going on. Otherwise all the men would be like jumping over the fences to see, but we we're very, you know, as people, we want to, uh, be able to see the environment around us. Right. And we're, we're inquisitive by nature. We usually don't walk by something. And if you walk by something that like three times, generally speaking, you're like, what's going on there? What's happening with this? See, I think that might have been what was so successful when we talked about Central Arts of Bedford and that shopping center. Yeah. Putting lights in mm -hmm. and art. Yeah. Even though no one was in there, that was, there mm -hmm. was life there. Yeah. There was something that drew them there. So yeah. that is, membrane is, is a good one. Yeah, I like you. that. Window, window displays are incredibly important. And having an engaging window display is incredibly important and it, it's it's one of the many things that sounds so easy that it sounds like there's more important things that you could be doing and it's like no if if you have if you have dark empty windows if you're walking down the street at night on a main street and you see a, a, a several dark empty windows you're going to turn around and go the other way if you see something that's engaging you're going to keep going and invited yeah inviting. right it's, it's inviting and and you know the the storefront is you know you can call it the the other thing i hear is it's it's the seam between the public and private realm and what happens in the storefront you know you'll see a lot of times cities will subsidize what happens in the upper story of a building um they'll say hey if we bring more residents in here you know, maybe people will come down on a, a, a Friday night and they'll they'll go buy some steak or something like that. I don't know. It, it, but it, it's much more important. If anything, the city subsidizes, in my opinion, it should be the storefront. 
It should be, you know, if you need help getting the storefront CO ready, um, if you need help with, with displays, if you need some help with the facades, that's the part that the public sees. Um, and that's the part that's really going to have the, the biggest influence. Um, it's, it's interesting because uh, the, the uh, gosh, this was years ago, I guess this was 2011 or 2010 or something like that. Um, the city, downtown Dallas Inc. actually came out with a great plan on paper that was basically the core of our downtown. At the time, they had about 100,000 square feet of empty storefronts. And they were going to um, basically get the storefront seal ready, so white box the storefronts. And then if the market didn't rent something out, they would have had a pop-up. Um, so there would have been not a single empty storefront in downtown Dallas. And unfortunately... Um, on paper, it was fantastic. I think they couldn't just, they weren't able to get the momentum to do it with the city. You know, that's how cities work. It's hard to do yes, things like that yes. sometimes. Um, but, but I think that that's, you know, the, how you, how the pedestrian experiences, what is next to the pedestrian is amazingly important. And Central Arts got that intuitively, even though it was, you know, basically a strip mall and you were basically passing by in a car to see light coming out and to see something engaging and worth. Maybe right. And one of the main things down. was if you went to one business there, right. then you then you were there. It was a walkable space. And that's what people used it for was a walkable space. Oh, let's walk over here and see what's going on over here. And it was very successful. Too bad about Dallas, but at least they tried. Yeah, they got you know they're they're doing they're doing elements of that. I mean, okay. they have pop ups downtown and things like that. And I think that you know when when they came out with these ideas in in 2000, 2009, 2010, yeah. as their their main street district, it, it was ahead of their time. I think so. I think that that the times are are catching up, and a lot of the things. Um, you know, a lot of the things that I remember seeing in 2012 and so forth that, that I thought should be done, we're seeing now. In well, the I'm sure here. you guys know this, that the things that you talk about used to be so foreign to people. Right. And, you know, the same thing with me when I first started hearing, like the 7th Street thing, you know, right. many, many years ago, that, that was just so new. But now you are seeing that people do understand that and, and you've got a lot more conversation and engagement with it. So. Yeah. And, and even, yeah, you know, and, and a lot of the time, I mean, we've been, we've been doing this stuff for six years um, and we have, you know, a portfolio and examples to show people and so forth. But, um, you know, I remember six years ago, I, I would get into a conversation about some of these ideas with someone who was an intelligent person. Like I could tell, like they had been working in city planning their entire life. And after 40 minutes, they would say, oh, so you're saying this. And I'd be like, well, how about this one? No, pop that's not what I'm saying. No, pop up. Pop exactly. up. When we first started doing the pop ups with you guys and I was going around saying, we're going to have a pop up. Almost everybody would say, what is a pop up? Right. But now it's it's in the lingo. Is it like we, I, do, it is. Do, yeah, it's, it's hard to know if, if how did you describe a pop up to them? Yeah. Well, I would say it's where you go, you go in and you bring food trucks and entertainment and you have local artisans. You open up the space to the community and you know just hope that it fills with community related things and they would go oh wow that's fabulous there you go yeah. pop up we're getting towards the end of the time now i would say what what would you say to a young young girl or young guy who's one of the on the more creative end of things like yourself to to say like hey you, you there's a place for you in local government too like i i think that you could be a great encouragement to the creatives and the more artists that 
sometimes I don't know if shy away from that or just don't think that there's necessarily a place for them. But how would you encourage them or what would you say to them to say, you know, this is for you, too. And your your voice is as, as important as all the other different voices out there. Well, that's interesting, Christopher, because I do, um, you know, I have 12 grandchildren. Right. So I've always, you know, love, love kids, love young adults and um, think it's very important for uh, people in government right now to be a mentor to younger generations. And I think that I think we're, that's something else that we're discovering as an older generation, the baby boomer generation. You know, the younger generation needs they need a chance now. They need to be involved and getting involved in community service. I see a lot of them already, uh, the, the arts programs that we have. You know, if you're, if you're an artist, if you're a create, creative type, volunteer for a children's program. You know, just help get out the Crayolas or p wash the paintbrushes. If you have, uh, if you're concerned about the homeless, uh, there's a lot of organizations where you can just volunteer you know, getting involved with the city is really getting involved with your community. So if you start out where you can, being a volunteer with for a cause that you really feel drawn to, that I think that will spur you on to, uh, one thing, meeting more people, getting more involved, more connected. So that would be my, that would be my words of wisdom. <laughs> Get involved. Take, right. Take the take the first step, and and you'll be a leader in your community. Because if you're a volunteer, you're more apt to be able to make your own hours. Right. You know, I've talked to a lot of young people and and gotten several involved in some of our um, other activities, but those are struct more structured. It's like, oh, I have two or three jobs. I can't show up at eight o'clock for this. But if you're if you're wanting to be part of your community, there's always um, somewhere where you can volunteer and you can make your own hours and kind of go from there. Well, uh, I think that's great. I think that's a great place to leave this off. So, Cindy, um, great conversation and uh, as interesting as I hoped it would be. And I thank you so much for coming down to you're our welcome. office and uh, talking to us a little bit about your city and your experience being a councilwoman there. Well, thank you. Thank you for the coffee. This is fabulous coffee. You're welcome. <laughs> thank you for the conversation because I have always enjoyed talking to you, you guys about redevelopment and the ideas that you have and the different interesting places that you work. No, thank you. Thanks and for having me. You're great, Cindy. We you are you. great. We, oh, we, we love having you here. <laughs> and that's one of the reasons why uh, you were our first podcast interview, and and I'm um, glad that this turned well, out well. Well, that is so. an honor. And, and I'll, <laughs> and I'll further that. plug you. Uh, whenever we were doing some of the pop up events, uh, Cindy was out there making signs. City City Councilwoman uh, Cindy Shepard making signs for the events herself. So. Um, wayfinding is important. Wayfinding, <laughs> wayfinding is very important. <laughs> yes, yes. We won't start on that okay. one. We've talked about enough. <laughs> um, maybe a future podcast we can we can bring up wayfinding. So, uh, thank you, Cindy. You're welcome. Thank you. Bye bye.